Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Hey, welcome Horizon West Church. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Those who are in the room, also those who are joining us online, we are glad that you're here. Uh, Tonight and today, we're going to have the talk. No, not that talk. We're going to have the politics talk. Let me uh, illustrate this in a certain kind of way. This is a, a jersey that hangs up in my closet. You'll know if you know football or you know sports what, uh, by the color. But when I put this shirt on, this represents the team that I pull for, which is Miami, Miami the Hurricanes, right? But some of you really don't like the Hurricanes because some of you are Gators or you're Knowles or you're Knights or you're some other team And though it's not a big deal, just seeing me in orange and green causes you to go, man, I thought I liked Chris, right? (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to keep this shirt on. We're just going to use that for illustrative purposes. Um, And while the, the election season and while politics matter more, and they do matter more than college football, the truth is that sometimes uh, we put on our colors and we rep our, our, our team, if you will, in such a way that it creates division. And so I want to speak to that. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a passage of scripture in the Old Testament that's going to kind of be an anchor point for us. Um, and then we're going to go through four values that I think are, are helpful as we think through the election season. But honestly, beyond that, just values that Christians live out. Um, and then I want to end with some application and some time of prayer. Okay, And that's how we're going to kind of get through today's service. Some of you saw me post this on Facebook a little while back. I want to read it again. This is a quote from Adrian Rogers 25 years ago. Adrian Rogers was a former Southern Baptist pastor in Tennessee. He was a three-time SBC president, Southern Baptist uh, Convention president. And this is what Adrian Rogers said. The enemy is not the Democrats. The enemy is not the Republicans. And by the way, we'd better not get overly identified with either party. We need to tell both of them to repent and get right with God. Now here's what is true in our day. Uh, Things aren't exactly like they were 25 years ago. And some of you might go, well, but actually now the Republicans are the problem, or actually now the Democrats are the problem. But here's what I believe. The church must remain in the position of holding accountable people to the word of God. And similar to the way a referee Uh, comes to a football game or a a basketball game not to take sides or not to rep one of the team's colors but to tell both of them this is the way you play the game and to call them out when they're out of line. Imagine if you would with me that the year is 2033. Uh, We've just had a a president for the last several years that has been well loved by most people, high approval ratings But now an army general has taken over his place. And in just a short time, this new president, this former army general, has implemented some great policies. He's improved health care. He's improved uh, nutrition in uh, children's schools. He's doing a lot of good things. But today, what is on the mind of this new young president is a national security threat. He knows 
that there is an imminent threat on Washington, D.C., but also on his own life. And he's carrying that with him. And for the first time all day, he's in the Oval Office. There's no other uh, Secret Service agents or other people around. And so he's able to think about this. And all of a sudden, he notices somebody in the corner of his Oval Office. He notices a person he hadn't noticed before. And right off the bat, he can tell this is not a Secret Service agent. He can tell this is not one of his cabinet members. And suddenly a a creepy feeling begins to wash over this new president. Sensing the president's concern, the man responds with these words. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here to help you. I'm here as a commander of the armies of God. Now if that sounds odd or far-fetched or even imaginative on my part, I want to take you to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, this is the one passage we're going to kind of launch out of. We'll spend just a few minutes here. And here's the scenario, much like the one I just painted. It's not 2033, but rather it's thousands of years ago. Uh, Moses has just died, and his young apprentice, Joshua, is now leading the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are standing just outside of Jericho. The Canaanites inhabit the land. God has told them they are to inhabit the land. And this is what happens. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Now when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let me just, in a couple of minutes, unpack what's going on in this passage. First of all, this individual, this commander of the army of the Lord, some have said, well, that sounds like it's probably an angel. Maybe that's the archangel Michael, but there's a problem with that view. Did you catch it in the passage? What does Joshua do when the commander of the Lord's army shows up? He falls on his face in worship. Now, anytime somebody in Scripture falls on their face in worship before a person like the apostles or before an angel, the response is, get up, don't worship me. The commander of the Lord's army doesn't say that, which leads me to believe this is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, coming as a representative of heaven to Joshua. And notice the two questions Joshua asks. One, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Now, from Joshua's vantage point, there's a very clear us and them, right? Us is the Israelites, them is the Canaanites, and by the way, one of them is clearly the good guys and one's clearly the bad guys, right? So it should be a softball question, which side are you on? And yet, the response, I'm not on either side. Are you for us or our adversaries? No, he says, no, but as commander of the armies of the Lord, I have come. One preacher said it like this, the angel of the Lord did not come to take sides, he came to take charge. So this is what happens. And notice that the moment that Joshua's eyes lift from the human struggle that he's engaged in to the person of Jesus, that he engages in worship. But first he had to lift his eyes. 
And I love that second question Joshua asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua moves from a posture of the commander of the army to the servant of the commander. Do you see that? All of a sudden, Joshua sees, hey, it's not on my shoulders. It's, it's not all on me to win the victory. There is another, the commander of the Lord's armies, and I am his servant, and my job is to worship. My job is to look to him. Friends, it is no surprise that within 72 hours, our nation will have elected the person to lead us into the next four years. And some would ask the question, well, who should I vote for? And I'm not going to answer that question for you. So if you thought I was, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm not even going to necessarily tell you how to make your choice. What I want to do is to explain to you what matters to the heart of a Christian and what should be on our minds, not only when we're in the voting booth, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We might think about this as representing the family table. Uh, not every family table, but most are held up by four legs. And so I want to give you four values that you might think of as four legs that hold up the family table of values that we adhere to as Christians. And by the way, I believe that these values are not party specific, but rather things that all Christians together should hold to. Now, let me add one more disclaimer. You are going to think at some point in this conversation, oh good, Chris is going to vote for the right guy. And then another time you might think, oh no, Chris is not going to vote for the right guy. Or you might think, maybe Chris isn't going to vote for one of the guys at all because, by the way, there's a woman running. But that's beside the point, right? But you're going to wrestle with that, and I'm going to try to avoid trigger words, but hang in there with me because we're going somewhere. Here's the first value that matters to us as Christians. We believe that life is sacred. I want to go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. This is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God creates life, and then he says to the man and the woman, he says, you now have dominion over the earth. What in the world does that mean? Dominion is the purposeful care and cultivation of God's creation. It's not dominion like, I just like do what I want here, like I'm the king of the castle. No, it's care and cultivation of God's good creation. And if we were to kind of unpack Genesis and scripture, we'd see that there is an order of creation that goes like this. First, there is basic like plant life, right? And Christians should care to cultivate and keep alive things that make the world beautiful, that provide oxygen. In other words, we should care about the environment. Several years ago, I was in Southern California on a missions trip, and there was a group there, an environmentalist group there, and they wanted us to sign some petition about the air in Southern California. And I made an offhanded remark that went like this. I said, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's all going to burn one day anyway, right? Because here was, here was my theological position. The earth is temporary, so ultimately it doesn't matter. We're here trying to get people to go to heaven, okay? Here's the problem. Of all people, Christians 
who believe that God entrusted the stewardship of the earth to people should care about the environment, right? We, we should be pro-environment. We should care for the planet. But there is a higher rung. That higher rung would be animal life. God said to Adam that all of the plants of the earth I give to you and to the animals for food to eat. So, so just by food chain, we can know that animals are a higher uh, level than what plants are. This is what Proverbs 12 and verse 10 says. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. In other words, this is something my dad always taught me growing up, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they treat animals, right? You see a kid who's like just, just abusive to animals or enjoys like killing frogs and lizards, there's a problem there, right? There's something in the heart that's bent. We should care even about animal life. To abuse or to exploit or I believe even to kill animals for fun should be rejected because it is part of God's good creation. Then we have the highest rung. And the highest rung of God's creation is the human life. We believe as Christians that every human being is created by God in the image of God for fellowship with God. And so the Christian position when it comes to abortion is to be pro-life. That is the Christian position because we believe that God is the author of life. We believe beyond that, that to be Christian is to be pro the life of immigrants. We believe beyond that, that to be Christian is to be pro the life of convicts and pro the life of refugees. And not just to value life in the womb, but to value the goodness of all life and the image of God in all life from womb to tomb. That is the Christian position. Now I want to demonstrate a complexity and I'm not going to go to abortion. I want to go to a different issue to demonstrate this complexity. Let me talk for just a second about capital punishment. Because I want to show you how two people can both value something and come to different sides of it politically. Someone might say, when it refers to capital punishment or the death penalty, that the taking of life is so abhorrent that the death penalty should never be applied no matter what the circumstances in, because they're pro-life. So even a, a, a monster, so to speak, even somebody who does unspeakable evil, and takes life, we still should not take their life because we are pro-life. And then somebody else comes along and says, no, 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 no. As a society, we must demonstrate how much we value life by when a person callously disregards it, we, we require their life of them because we're pro-life. Do you see the complexity there? Now you can fall really strong on one side or the other and make your case, but it is an example of how some of these values are difficult to flesh out when it comes to our loss. But because God is the author of life and because every human being is created by him in his image and for fellowship with him, we should ask before voting which candidate will best advocate for the life and well-being of all people. Not picking and choosing, not saying this group matters, but we don't care about the rest, or these groups matter, but not this. We must advocate for life. Here's the second value. Government is good. So first, life is sacred. Government is good. Romans 13 verses 1 through 4 says this. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. May I remind you, friends, that Paul wrote the letter of Romans to believers in Rome where Nero was the ruler. And he said, submit to the government. I was in a meeting with Pastor Israel, our, our Spanish ministry pastor at our John Young campus. Israel grew up in Cuba, and in the middle of this meeting, as we talked about these topics, he said, you know, some government is better than no government. We said, but you're from Cuba, right? Like, talk about a government we would not choose to live under, and yet he made a valid point. He said, no, 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 but some government is better than no government. When you have no government, you have absolute anarchy. Government is good. It is instituted by God for the good of people. What we desire is for government not only to be good or to do some good, but for government to be at its best. And a government is at its best when it serves to restrict those who would do harm and to reward those who would do good. I believe that's the point of Romans 13. Now, this includes the passing of laws and the implementing of policies that are good for people, okay? It matters what our rulers do with their decision-making, and it matters how that plays out in the lives of people. We as Christians should oppose laws and policies that reward greed and corruption, right? We should be against laws and policies that reward people for being greedy or for being corrupt. And we should also... Uh, resist or, or, or not vote in favor of policies that restrict people's access to things like equal education, fair pay, or the right to vote, right? We, we should hold government accountable to be for people's good and not for their own pockets. And yet, we recognize that government, though good, is limited. I'm sure most of you like going to the beach, and, and when you go to the beach, you know that over time, where you're sitting on the beach, you have to start what? Backing up your things because the tide's coming up, right? Tide goes down, the tide comes up. But the ocean knows ultimately where the shoreline is. An ocean that didn't know where its boundary was would be a deadly thing. And governments that don't know where their boundaries lie become potent to the people they're to serve. So here's the third value. Freedom is essential. Freedom is essential. Did you know that the first three words spoken by God, according to the New International Version, the first three words spoken by God to man in Genesis 2.16 are this, you are free. Did you ever know that? First words spoken by God, you are free. Now let me make an observation. Because as Christians, as evangelical Christians, we, we tend to be very concerned about religious liberty, and I believe we should be. We, we need to be concerned that we have the right to continue to worship, to gather, uh, to read the word of God, to, to share our faith with others. Those things are so very important. But here's a concern that I have. Most evangelical Christians that I know, when they speak of religious liberty, they're referring to their own right to worship. 
And as Pastor Danny says at our John Young campus, you're not really for religious liberty until you're for the other guy's right to practice his religion. Now, now this is where this can get complicated. I was in a conversation with my friend Joseph a little while back. Joseph is an atheist, and, and we believe very different things about God. And he was talking to me about some laws he wanted to see changed and policies in Winter Garden, and, and we were having that conversation. And I said, you know, Joseph, I agree with you on some of this, but, but I also want to be clear. I don't want to live in a world where there's less belief in God. I want to live in a world where there's more belief in God. But my view is predicated on this reality. God gives people freedom to choose. God gives people freedom to choose. So the same freedom that allows me to preach God's word on this stage with zero fear of threat has to be extended governmentally to others, right? And we as Christians should advocate for their right to practice their religion, even if we disagree with what that religion teaches. Did you know that Baptists historically were the champions of this in America? Baptists in the 17 and 1800s were the champions for saying, hey, those guys up the road believe differently than us, but make sure the laws protect them. You know part of the reason? Well, biggest part is because that's biblical, but also in 20 or 50 or 100 years, when it's determined by our country that Christianity is immoral, I want the right to continue to proclaim Christ, right? So, so I'm thinking about that, and, and this is an example, friends, where sometimes our theology and our politics get messy, and, and we can be super conservative the, theologically and, and hold to the truths of God's word, and yet ensure that people have freedom to believe differently. I want to illustrate this by a, a passage of scripture that we don't have the time to go to, but 1 Kings chapter 19, we see the prophet Elijah, and he's on, uh, he's on Mount Carmel with the, with the prophets of Baal. Baal is a false god that the people in mass are worshiping. In fact, it, it's so rampant that Elijah comes to believe he's the only true prophet of God left. God reminds him that's not true, and then suddenly uh, Elijah is on this mountain with these prophets of Baal, and they are calling on their God to send fire from heaven. Now let me put a pause in the story real quick. There is something that has been happening over the last probably 40 to 50 years especially, and it has become way more aggressive in the last 10 to 20 years in America, and it's called pluralism. Pluralism is uh, when you are in a place where other religions or a, a massive diversity of religions are expressed. If any of you have recently attended University of Central Florida, you know that Christianity is not a preferred religion at UCF. Pluralism. Everybody's on the same playing field there. That is an increasing thing in our world, and it creates challenges for us as Christians. But I believe the answer to the dangers of our day, the answer to religious pluralism is not to shut the other guy up. The answer is to pray fire down. Here's what I mean. Elijah allowed the prophets of Baal to have their moment calling on their God. He even uh, teased them and, and was uh, mocking them as they did so because he knew their God would not answer. He let them have their day. And then when Elijah prayed, God sent fire from heaven. Here's what I believe. When Jesus enters the public ring with the other so-called gods, Jesus wins. So I don't need to shut the other guys up. 
I need to live and proclaim Jesus in such a compelling way that the only God who is, Yahweh, Jesus, Jehovah, he wins. And we need to ensure that we have the freedom to do that along the way. So I believe the church, uh, even as we should engage in these things, we, we need to make sure our focus is on the right things. The, the most important thing is not which candidate wins the election. The most important thing is that we're reproducing disciples who believe that Jesus is the greatest thing that there is, who believe that when Jesus enters the conversation, he draws people. When the Son of Man is lifted up, he draws people to himself. We need to be raising up our children, our teenagers, our young people to be ready if and when we face persecution, to cling to Jesus. That's where the battle is most important. Here's the fourth and final virtue, and then I want to spend some time in prayer as we close. Fourth virtue is this, fourth value, love is supreme. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Can we be honest about a fact? And the, and the fact is this, that when we go into the voting booth, like when we do many things in our daily life, we have a tendency uh, to think of ourselves first. The way this applies to voting is we have a tendency to think primarily about who's going to lower my taxes or increase my 401k. Or we think which candidate will best protect me uh, from violence. And that's okay, right? Or which candidate will maybe pay off my student loans? We, we have a tendency to think, me, my, me, what's best for me? Let me show you a better way. Paul said, the most excellent way is to love. In the words of Andy Stanley, to ask, what does love require of me? Or in the words of David Platt, what does my neighbor need? If we live that in every other sphere, but we don't take that into the voting booth, what are we doing? Now, it's not the only question we ask, but it needs to be there. As Christians, we must ask, what is good for my neighbor? And let me remind you that when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He told a story about a Samaritan who was helping a victim of violence. In other words, Jesus said, your neighbor is the one who's unlike you. Your neighbor may just be the refugee or the immigrant or the poor. And we need to bring that into our, our, our election thinking. We need to bring that into our politics as in every sphere of our life. In the Old Testament, we see passage after passage where Jesus reminds, or rather, where God reminds his people to care for the poor. I'm going to give you just a quick uh, summary of those examples. Deuteronomy 15:11, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and to the poor in your land. Psalm 82.3, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Zechariah 7, 8 through 10, this is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. These things matter. I know Christians that will double down on, on single verses in the New Testament and say, this is so important to our theology, but will overlook the dozens and dozens and dozens of verses where God calls his people to remember those who are most vulnerable. 
I'll share something very honest with you. Earlier this week, as we talked as pastors about uh, sharing this conversation, David's doing it Sunday morning, I'm doing it here in this context. And the conversation was this illustration about a family table, that we need to uphold the family table. And my first thought was, man, doesn't that feel like we're saying, vote what matters to me, <laughs> like, like put my family first? But here was the epiphany we came to. Do you know one of the values at my family table is that we make room for more. I mean, one of the things that we most value is that the vulnerable are welcome. Those who are without have a place, that we're not closed off, that we're not thinking only of ourselves. And so even as we talk about family values, might I challenge you to make sure one of those is that love is supreme, that we think not only of ourselves, but we think of others. I want to close by reading something so that I don't misspeak. I want to say it just the way that I wrote it, and this is how we'll close, and then go to a time of prayer. In the next 72 hours, our nation will choose an individual to lead America through the next four years. On Tuesday night, the world will watch to see the outcome of that decision, and the results will have a real and legitimate impact on the kind of country we all live in. But there is something else the world is watching. They have been for as long as any of us are alive and they will continue far beyond Tuesday night's election coverage. The world is watching to see what followers of Jesus look like. They're watching to see how we treat those who disagree with us. They're watching to see whether our unity is merely political or whether it transcends any human explanation and is rooted in the gospel we claim to believe. And while the results of this presidential election will have consequence, the witness of the church has far greater consequence. In fact, it is the only institution in the world about which Jesus has promised the gates of hell will not overcome it. So let us be the church. Let us point to Jesus. Let us vote, yes, but let us remain committed to the belief that our hope is in a place called heaven and we call people there. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.